0: Support for Jesuitical comes from Emory University's Candler School of Theology, offering a master's degree with a focus on Catholic studies to prepare for lay ministry, nonprofit leadership, or a scholarship in Catholic context. Details at Candler.emory.edu slash Jesuitical.
1: Hello, and welcome to Jesuitical, a podcast by the young, hip, and lay editors of American Media. That lay part means we aren't Jesuits, but we work with them. Join us each week for a smart Catholic take on faith, culture, and the news, often over drinks. I'm Ashley McKinless, and I'm joined by Olga Segura. Hey, guys. And Zach Davis.
0: Great to be with you both.
2: We're really excited. We, I mean, I'm excited and sad for you because you're getting married. But I'm also sad. We're gonna sad. lose you for two weeks. Yeah, yeah. Like, we're not gonna have you. I'm gonna miss your jokes that I make so much fun Aww, of. Oh,
0: thanks. <sighs> it, it's true. I don't want a podcast from the honeymoon. Yeah, um, that's I thought fair. about it. No, no,
2: no. You cannot.
0: <laughs> no, excited.
2: Amanda, we, would not we, want we might that. still
1: call you, <laughs> <laughs> but only only to leave you fun messages,
0: yes, not great.
2: to
1: bring you into SLTs. Okay, we awesome. promise. All right. All right. So, what is our last pre-wedding drink with you?
0: Zach. I was so excited about this drink. Um, our guest this week, who Olga's going to introduce, suggested it. It's a Boulevardier, mm-hmm. which is a twist on a uh, Negroni, if you've had that. If you, uh, I know what you're thinking. You hate Campari. It's what I thought, too. But for <laughs> some reason, it's like a it's like a Negroni, but it's made with bourbon instead of gin.
1: And everything that has bourbon is yeah, better. Yeah,
0: and the sweetness of the bourbon just makes this really delicious. Mm-hmm. So uh, yeah. cheers, y'all. Cheers, guys.
1: Cheers. And who are we talking to this week, Olga? So
2: this week we're talking with James K.A. Smith, who is a philosopher and the author of the new book, On the Road with St. Augustine, A Real World Spirituality for Restless Hearts. I,
0: I I saw you just almost turn off the podcast because you heard the word philosopher. <laughs> Don't do it. Jamie Smith is super fun. He, he is really
1: good. Yeah, really makes
0: Augustine <laughs> super accessible. And Augustine's got a great life story, so you're going to want to hear this. And
1: one's a, what it's relatable to young people. I have.
0: Oh, yeah, like super, like all those questions about what do I do with my life? If you have angst,
1: if you're ambitious, then
2: if this you're is approaching, the same for you. <laughs> if
0: you're approaching a crisis because you're turning 30. Maybe. I'm not pointing at Olga, but I I, I am pointing <laughs> Listeners,
2: at he Listeners, he's pointing at me because I am
1: turning 30 this month.
2: <laughs> he's
0: relatable to the youths, so, so stick more around. on that, yeah.
1: <laughs> but first, Signs of the Times, the part of our show where we sift through the Catholic news of the week so you don't have to. Our first story comes from the U.S., where the Trump administration announced that it was going to limit the number of refugees admitted to the United States to just 18,000. And that's down from... 85,000 the last year of Obama's presidency. So that is a steep cut. Well, and
0: 18,000 is the limit. And mm-hmm. it's very likely that it will be even far less than that.
1: Yeah, because we just don't have the ability to process all these refugee claims. There's, We're expecting... Or
0: we're choosing not to. Yeah,
1: right. Exactly. We have the ability. They're expecting 350,000 ex- asylum claims next year. So this is a very small percentage of the need.
2: Right, right. And the White House wants to also allow states and localities to refuse to resettle refugees. And a lot of people have spoken out against this, including Sister Donna Markham, who is the president and CEO of Catholic Charities USA. And she released a statement opposing these measures by the administration.
0: She said the U.S. must remain the beacon of hope to people who feel forgotten and abandoned by the world and maintain its status as a leader of refugee policy for all nations to follow. Easy to say. I don't think we're doing that now.
1: Yeah. And our next story, I think, has a little bit to say about that.
0: Yeah, In stark contrast, uh, this past Sunday, Pope Francis celebrated mass in St. Peter's Square for the 105th World Day of Migrants and Refugees.
1: Yeah. And the pope, once again, he's done this many times. He condemned what he calls the globalization of indifference. Um And he said, as Christians, we cannot be indifferent to the tragedy of old and new forms of poverty, to bleak isolation, contempt and discrimination experienced by those who do not belong to our group.
2: Right. And after the mass, he inaugurated a 20 foot tall bronze statue that's meant to depict the 140 migrants and refugees from different times and cultures, including Jews fleeing Nazi Germany, Syrians fleeing the Civil War and Africans escaping poverty and famine.
0: Yeah, I didn't realize this, um, but the hundred, it's the first sculpture that's being installed in St. Peter Square um, since the time of Bernini, which was like 400 years ago. So yeah. it's like a permanent fixture there.
1: Yeah, it's definitely worth Googling and seeing the picture. It's striking. Yeah. Um, what's our next story, Olga? So
2: the Synod of Bishops for the Pan-Amazon region begins this weekend on October 6th. So we decided, before we get into it a little, we wanted to give you some basics. So Like, what is a synod and what does
1: Pope Francis mean when he uses the our favorite term synodality? Yeah. Why did they choose this word? That means nothing to anyone. (laughs) But basically, a synod is a meeting of bishops. It's a consultation. So they're not like voting on measures that will be passed and implemented in the church. They will they will discuss they will listen and then they will give, um, you know, advice to Pope Francis. And then he may or may not write an apostolic exhortation after the synod.
2: Right. And one of the things that Pope Francis hopes to create with these synods is a culture of dialogue where these bishops come together and create a an environment where they can collaborate and enter into dialogue together. And this is what he means by synodality.
0: And this meeting is actually an example of a special assembly which focuses on a particular geographic region. So this, in this case, the Pan-Amazonian region.
1: They have released a working document ahead of this and so we know what they're going to be talking about there's a lot of focus on one the environment as we saw this summer there were the fires in the Amazon um, and so climate change is definitely a lived reality there already um, but it's also uh the church in the Amazon is definitely on the peripheries there are people who live in very remote villages where it's hard for them to have access to the sacraments because there just are not enough priests and so
0: and almost the, all the people in this region are Catholic too yeah
1: um or or uh, have indigenous religions and that's mm-hmm. another part of the Synod yep. is like how do we how do we create a church in the language of the working document with with an Amazon face so like how do you how do you evangelize in in this specific culture and the the starting point for that is listening to people from the Amazon which they have done in the in the year and a half leading up to the Synod
0: so one of the big issues that's drawing a lot of attention is, whether or not to ordain uh, married men as priests. Because if you think there's a pre-shortage in the United States, you have no idea what the people in the Amazon are facing. I mean, they're... Yeah, people off- will
1: go... Six months, even a year, without being able to celebrate the Eucharist because there aren't enough priests to reach these remote villages.
0: Yeah, so that's a flashpoint for a lot of people, but it's not the only issue, as Ashley mentioned. Mm -hmm. Um, The Vatican released the working document back in July. And while a lot of people in the church have welcomed the document, uh, there are some that have been a little critical thinking that there's uh, a little bit of church politics at play and not necessarily uh, movement of the spirit.
2: Right, right. So for example, German Cardinal Walter Brandmuller has been critical of the language that we see in this document. And he also argues that there's hidden intentions by a lot of the organizers of the synod. And he thinks that you know, people are going to focus on the priest celibacy question or the ordination of women, and it's going to detract from what the synod should actually be. Um, And then there's also Cardinal Raymond Burke, who in a letter to the College of Cardinals wrote that the document contradicts a lot of what the
1: church actually teaches us to do as Catholics. Right. And these both both Cardinal Brandmuller and Cardinal Burke, they have been critical of Pope Francis before. Um, These are two of the four Cardinals who wrote an open letter to Pope Francis after the Synod on the family um, saying that it was creating um, a lot of disorientation and confusion among the faithful because of what the Synod document said about giving communion to divorced and remarried Catholics so it's not particularly surprising that they are critical of the upcoming Synod as well but I do think I think they are a a, a loud, um, dissenting voice, but I don't think they're representative of like where most of the Catholic Church is.
0: Yeah, and uh, Father Michael Cherney, who will soon be Cardinal Michael Cherney, he's a Jesuit and longtime Vatican official who um, is going to be a special secretary for the Synod. He also cautioned against paying attention to disagreements between church leaders because this part of the world really needs our attention, and so the Synod definitely needs to happen with sort of all all of our energies invested in it.
1: What's our next story, Ashley? Uh, so this one's a little closer to home. Our friend and colleague, Father James Martin, had a private audience with Pope Francis this past Monday.
0: Yeah, and it, uh, I was like, what? It's <laughs> not, it jealous. wasn't one of these, like, quick meet-and-greet photo ops Um like, I gave the Pope a high five one time, yeah. but I don't know that we, like, shared a special connection. Yeah,
2: this this wasn't that. Father Martin was in Rome for a meeting with the Vatican communications advisors, and he met for 30 minutes with the Pope in the Apostolic Palace, which is the room usually reserved for when Pope Francis meets with heads of states, other cardinals, and other high-level
0: officials. Yeah, and so it, it was... Just those two and a translator mm-hmm. at the meeting. So, a real intimate encounter. And
1: apparently, a photographer because there are pictures. There, there are photos. Yeah. I always, I love,
0: people often say that about papal meetings. They're like, there are only these people present. Yeah. And what? then, obviously, the person who took his photo. <laughs> um, but uh, Father Martin, Jim, as we know him, uh, he interpreted this meeting as a sign of the Holy Father's care for the LGBT people because obviously, that's the ministry that Jim is known for here in the United States. It's his mm-hmm. outreach to people in our church who feel excluded because of their sexuality.
1: Right. And and a Vatican source told America before the meeting that Pope Francis had actually read Father Martin's book, um, Building a Bridge, which is about how the Catholic Church can reach out to people um, in the LGBT community. Um, and he, he understood the context of like the criticism that Father Martin has received for that work. Um, and so the fact that he invited him to this meeting is significant.
0: And also— significant because i think we're one step closer yes we are <laughs> to getting pope francis on jesuitical <laughs> so stay tuned yes. listeners
2: <laughs> and what is our last story olga so our last story this week is one that was brought not just by me but also by rich McKinless, who <laughs> is the father of our very own ashley and i think that was the only we needed a parent to kind of make it past our sports center for this yeah. one so steve javi <laughs> was the nba's best ref then he went to catholic seminary
0: Yeah, this is a profile in the Wall Street Journal about, as you mentioned, Steve Javi, who was retired in 2011 uh, due to knee issues, um, running up and down the court, Mm -hmm. put strain on the knees. But before that, he was, I think, widely considered one of the most respected referees in the National Basketball Association.
1: Yeah. yeah, but then he felt a calling and spent seven years studying in seminary in Philly and then was just received as a deacon. So
2: yeah, he was recently ordained as a deacon. And like Ashley said, he felt this calling to just enter seminary. And he said, I really believe that searching, finding, and rejoicing relates to our gospel reading today. So it's it's a really inspiring story.
0: I, I think so. And I think this is an important story for the exact reason. I think not only Ashley's dad sent us a story, but a few people sent us this. They're like, this is something Jesuitical should talk about because it's sort of this hook people can grab onto. They're like, oh, I remember seeing that guy from sports, which is most Americans' religion. And I think it's important for people in the secular world and in the church to look at someone and listen to how God is calling them to any part of their life. And one of those ways is holy orders.
2: Jamie, could you give us the trailer for the movie version of Saint Augustine's life?
3: It's um, it's a Terrence Malick film. Okay, I'm uh, in. In a world, it's called, <laughs> it is uh, very moody. It's uh, it might be called Night of Cups, actually. Uh, so it, it's it's basically Augustine the young Manhattanite 1,500 years before New York existed, but he's basically out to make his mark on the world to find happiness by dominating and crushing everything and everyone. He's the social climber. He's the political climber. He's sexually voracious. He's he's on a conquest. And he gets everything he hopes for. And his life is empty. And then the sort of spooky, eerie Terrence Malick stuff <laughs> kicks in and there's these shards of transcendence that start appearing for him. And, and there's a kind of wake-up call. And he realizes, he, he thinks that he's on this conquest and then he realizes that he's the prodigal son and that he needs to look for home somewhere that he never would have guessed that he would have found it. Um, Which is ultimately in Christianity? It's ultimately in Christianity, exactly. So he's, in some ways, you know, you have to remember, Augustine is African. This This is a significant part of his identity. And so for him, he was also the provincial... Who is leaving the provinces of North Africa to head to Rome, to Milan, to get to the center of power where everything is happening?
1: So it's more like Zach, who came from Ohio to Manhattan. He's not a,
3: totally. he's not a
1: native Manhattanite.
3: I, right. Which yep. are there any native Manhattanites, right? This place is filled with aspirational questers. Mm-hmm. And um Augustine is looking for that kind of accomplishment, achievement, happiness. And and in a way, what I find intriguing about Augustine is that. He gets everything he's wanting, and then his life still feels wanting. And that's where he runs into... In Milan, he runs into Ambrose, Bishop Ambrose. And he meets somebody who is both brilliant and is talking about this crucified one. And and it just sort of rocks his world. And so he comes home, in a way, uh, uh, to Christian faith, and then that's actually what propels him back to Africa. And interestingly, he never leaves Africa again. Once he returns, he never... Uh, sets foot back on the Italian mainland, and I think there's there's a, there's something about his investment in his context in that regard.
0: Sort of what we were hoping for with LeBron James, but he left. <laughs> he left again. Um, well, and I love Augustine because there's all these supporting characters like Ambrose, and then his mother Monica, who's oh in the gosh. background.
3: You know, the casually. helicopter parent extraordinaire, yeah, and
0: praying for him the whole time. And right.
3: yes. Yeah. That is, yes, yeah.
1: So what was his uh, relationship to Christianity when he was young and not not so Christian yet? It,
3: yeah, that's a great question. Because in some ways, Augustine grows up in a kind of bicultural home, right? He he he. Uh, um, his father is Roman pagan. Uh, his mother is Berber, African, and a Christian. But what's interesting is that for the young Augustine, Christianity for him was his mother's Christianity, which he kind of looked down on because he didn't think it was very intellectually sophisticated. So part of his story is, right, his mother is there as a presence and mother church is there as a presence the whole time, praying for him, weeping over him. But Augustine thinks he's basically too smart for the church and too smart for his mother's simple, naive faith. And yet when he finally gets to and meets this this intellectual giant in Ambrose, who who both affirms the faith and is so brilliant, and Ambrose thinks the world of Monica. Ambrose admires Monica's faith, and that sort of sets Augustine reeling, and is the beginning really of his humility, his humbling. Humbling is such an ongoing theme for Augustine, and it's really part of his conversion. Is sort of learning to check uh, his intellectual arrogance, things like that.
0: So he converts, becomes the bishop um, in Africa eventually, 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 and then you know writes a lot. Yes, um, becomes yes. doctor of the church, uh, very influential. Right, absolutely. Uh, what? So quite the life story. But yeah. you, in your book, you talk about first encountering Augustine and being very turned off by him. Yes. What was that context? So, and why?
3: It's interesting, I, and I don't know. I'd be. I don't know if you guys have similar experiences. Now, I should also say, so I'm a Protestant, and the way that. Get that we, out of the way. Yeah, just <laughs> yeah. Just, let's, let's go clear. <laughs> was Augustine uh, Protestant or Catholic? <laughs> yeah. No. He was, remember you're a Catholic, he would say. And um, though he was the patron saint of the Reformations. That's, that's true. Yeah. Anyway, so, so Augustine is. Um, the way I encountered him was in this sort of like old stodgy translations as if he was this dogmatic theologian and sort of a moralist and a Puritan. And uh, um, it it was not a, a vibrant kind of Christian faith that you would want to journey with. And it wasn't until I started reading actually a kind of philosophical augustine that came to me through existentialism that it just was like putting on a new set of glasses and i reread the confessions and you're like oh my gosh this is like this is drama this is a screenplay waiting to happen and and i re- he felt more contemporary he felt more like somebody oh he he sort of knows my struggles
0: that reminds me of like what you were saying when when we walked in to do this interview you were talking about a story you heard about augustine where
1: well well I- I don't know if this is the story I was telling. I was telling you, but this is what I thought of: is that I was actually I, I read the Confessions in college, but way before that, my my older brother was a bit of a prodigal son, mm. and my mom is a very deep faithful Catholic, and she would always like refer to. My older brother Chris is like the Augustine of the family. Yeah, and yeah, she, yeah. she was like, he's either going to like die young or become a bishop. Well. <laughs> <laughs> and so like, I already had this very vibrant picture of who Augustine yeah. was. And my brother went on to become an not a bishop but a doctor so yeah like amazing good. amazing and so i yeah i like immediately was in love with the character and then when i read the confessions in college yes. like yeah
3: the son of these tears <laughs> right and and it's funny you know i i would also say several years ago my wife and i got to sort of retrace augustine's steps through italy from from ostia on the coast up through rome and we sort of visited and, and made pilgrimage to different sites and i would say one of the hugest um Impacts of that trip on me was a new appreciation for Monica. Her cult of devotion is everywhere, and you see why because yeah. there are sons of tears everywhere, and <laughs> yeah. you can see the. You know, in your book, you talk sympathy. about Santa
1: Monica, and like you, you get numb to like what that actually is until you are like, oh wait, that city in California is named after
2: yes. Saint right.
3: Augustine's
1: mom.
2: <laughs> yes,
3: yes, exactly. The ubiquity of it, we almost miss it.
2: So does does his story have a special re- Resonance with young adults and millennials? Um,
3: I think so. I mean, I, I think his story is just kind of perennial mm-hmm. and and probably speaks to a lot of people who are kind of questers of different sorts. But I do wonder if it speaks especially to a generation that I don't know. I think this metaphor of the spiritual journey, the kind of pilgrimage, that that model of spirituality seems very resonant with younger generations right now. But I also think Augustine, again, I, some people might be surprised to learn this about Augustine. I find him incredibly vulnerable. Do you know what I mean like I, I, like I hate the word authentic in a way, but he's really, really the Confessions is this really kind of authentic unburdening and unveiling and unmasking of himself. And it seems to me um, younger generations would appreciate that kind of honesty and authenticity. And he's not just kind of putting on this show that a bishop tells you all the things that he has like dreams about and stuff. It's like, okay, yeah. I was wow, reading just, that chapter we're getting in real.
1: Book and like you had this paragraph about authenticity and I was like, oh my God, this is just like Lady Bird and her, and, and her like take it, choosing her own name and like how are, we have this... A distorted idea of what freedom is and then literally the next page you're like in Lady yes, Bird yes, yes.
3: well done well, yeah yeah right exactly but it, it does it, it really sort of maps onto that experience yeah. in a lot of ways so
1: and this gets I think to like kind of the core of his journey of like Having this one idea of what freedom is and then, like, learning that it's actually something completely different. Can you talk a little bit about what that is?
3: Yeah. So, Augustine, the the young Augustine, like so many of us, I think, in late modernity, thinks freedom is the freedom to do whatever you want. It's freedom from, right? It's negative freedom and, and then, so he tries that out, but then he realizes how unbelievably exhausting and dissipate, you kind of lose yourself because now you've got a million options and you can do whatever you want, but then you're just sort of spread thin and dissipated and you, and you have no borders and boundaries and identity. And, and all of a sudden you realize, oh, well, what looked like freedom before you know it, you're sort of enslaved to an addiction. It's, it's why I think addiction is the way to understand what Augustine thought freedom was, and then he he realizes, oh no, freedom, true freedom, is being empowered to actually be able to choose my own good, and that's the last thing I'm able to do when I'm dissipated in all of these desires. And and of course, for Augustine, we have to say that's only possible by grace, right? This isn't spiritual self help or self management. There's this like incursion of the spirit's power into his life and and that sort of was his resurrection in a way.
0: And that's you mentioned the difference between him and some of the the existentialists that you 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 encountered in yes. in graduate school yeah. where you know they're also craving this authenticity, this vulnerability, uh real freedom but there's god's not speaking or they're not
3: listening is no, that it? No, exactly. And and what what's so intriguing is that one of the subtexts in the book is that Augustine is a huge influence on all those kinds of existentialist voices, Camus, Heidegger, Arendt. uh, um, But what they do is they kind of take the quest without Augustine's stipulation of the end, right? So they get the restless heart, but they don't entertain where you could find rest Mm -hmm. and that's and and of course it's scandalous because it's a norm right it's saying no this is the good for which human beings are made for and that's uh, i do wonder though if our culture is reaching a sort of um a moment where we have been so exhausted and dissipated by our own so-called freedom that are we willing to sort of entertain and say maybe there's a better way to be human and and maybe augustine has something to tell us about how to be human well and to realize the gift of norms in that regard and that that uh, um you find freedom in channel it's ladybird yeah. it's yeah. totally
0: <laughs> ladybird well, it's something i'm thinking about looking, you know staring marriage right in the face yeah. it's like uh it, it, on the one hand, it's just a social norm, a convention that your parents taught you, and it can be very restrictive if you look at it in a certain light. But, like, if you somehow know all of those things, like, putting these constraints around yourself unlocks so many so many things, right? It's like this revolutionary act in a culture that's Absolutely. sort of given up
3: on it. Absolutely. it's It's like it doesn't uh, determine everything for you. It just creates these channels that now you can flourish within. Uh, And there's all kinds of still individuality and freedom about that. But I I think that is probably the great countercultural message that Augustine offers to our current cultural moment. And I I do, I just wonder if we're already seeing signs of a kind of cracks in the secular where people might be willing to entertain that, you know? Mm -hmm.
1: And so you mentioned this briefly, but, these different ways of journeying, and so like the modern one is like you call it the road is life. So it's it's not about the destination; it's the journey and living in that kind of like constant movement. Yeah. It's um, kind of about Kerouac. Kind of, yeah,
0: yeah. <laughs> and Miley Cyrus too. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> it's oh. the climb. It's, <laughs> it's a, okay. Yes, sorry. Yes, I'm yeah. sorry.
1: <laughs> but but you propose um, an alternative, which you call like an emigre spirituality. So like we we are moving. Like yeah. it, it isn't that like the idea is that you're just home in this world as it is is now like so can you describe what this emigre yeah is? and
3: it's and you could say i i think what's intriguing is augustine would say the spiritual journey for one who has been found in god is not it, it's not even just a pilgrimage right there's something about see pilgrimage language you go to the the camino you have a you know powerful spiritual experience, but then you come back home again. Whereas for Augustine, actually, the human condition is more like the the venture of a refugee, an emigre, who is actually looking for a home that they're made for that they've never been to. That's and I I think that's um it's a really powerful portrayal of a kind of hunger that the human heart has. It, it's what De Lubac called a natural desire for the supernatural like i'm made for that and i'll arrive at a place i've never been and say i'm home but it also i think the emigre spirituality piece is about realizing oh i'm not there yet you know there's there's this yeah. there's this um delay this deferment this waiting this so you're you're on the way and so augustine isn't surprised by frustrations disappointments you know he d- he would never ever fall into the trap of imagining the kingdom has come or that it's arrived with some regime and i i think living so he teaches you how to live between in a way do
1: which, you have the restless quote can you do it you, off you, the top of your head?
3: yeah yeah so th- that opening <laughs> paragraph of the confessions you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they rest in you um that's a pretty good psychology of the human condition, it seems to me. And, and um, I think a, I love Augustine because he gets the restlessness. He doesn't try to pretend that that's not real. I also love him because he admits that even Christians are restless. <laughs> like, even once I know where home is, that doesn't quiet all the restlessness. And I, I just, I, um, I'm grateful for his honesty in that regard.
2: So Jamie, I'm I'm not a philosopher myself. So I and I think this is an experience that a lot of our listeners can kind of relate to. Mm. Um, I took the required two courses in college. For, I went to Fordham took That's two a courses sign of a good and never, and never yeah. went back. Um, <laughs> and even now as an adult, I'm turning thirty next thirty this month. Wow, actually, um, and I still find him kind of difficult to mm-hmm. engage with mm-hmm. sometimes mm-hmm. even even knowing now that i'm older and i've been in this you know field theolo- my co-workers studied philosophy and theology um but why do you think it can be so difficult for some people to engage with, with saint augustine
3: yeah so there's um a, a couple things one is he's so he is in conversation with philosophical sources of his day that are not in the water for us. Do you know what I mean? So he's in conversation with Neoplatonism and the Donatists and, you know, and so he's in, in some ways he's having fights that don't feel immediately relevant. So I think that's part of the barrier. Um, I also think though we, there are ways that we can make Augustine more accessible. And one of my real hopes for this book is that um, it will, It will invite some people who maybe have read the Confessions, parts of the City of God. Nobody's read all of the City of God. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, um, (laughs) People have read the treatises. What I really hope to invite them into, and this is what I learned at Villanova uh, in, in my education there. If you read the sermons and the letters... That's where you start to get this very human Augustine, this pastoral Augustine. I I think the sermons are a great for people who've been intimidated by the treatises, to pick up some of Augustine's sermons, you can find them online too. And it's like he's just talking to you. You know, he's he's really a pastor. He's he spent his life as a shepherd. And so there he's like, he's just alongside other Christians trying to help them know what is it to follow God in this area. And I, and I hope that uh sort of deconstructs maybe some of his inaccessibility in that regard. Um, but I also think situating him in relationship to contemporary culture, which is one of the things I try to do in On the Road with St. Augustine, maybe just makes it pop in different ways. Yeah, no, oh. you
1: have like the references to succession and labored and uh, <laughs> and it like works. And Jason is like... great, great,
0: <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah, Jason Isbell. Yeah, great. And one of the reasons I admire your work is you take very heady topics and you can make mm. them very Thank explainable you. to people. Thanks. I was taught that there were two ways of looking at the world within the church. And one is a, an, an Augustinian way of looking at the world. And the other is a Thomistic way of looking mm, at the world. Mm-hmm. Could you briefly like break down those Thank two things? Thank
1: you for asking that. I've always wondered that. Yes, <laughs> yes. No, and I mean,
3: where does Augustine fit in there? So part, part of me wants to deconstruct that dichotomy a little bit mm-hmm. because I actually think, Thomas is much more Augustinian than we sometimes realize. He's also much more platonic than we sometimes realize, especially if you read him through 19th century scholasticism. But uh, I, think, I think maybe the way to honor why people feel a difference there is probably Aquinas is still sort of the, the rationalist of the tradition in a way, right? He's still the intellectualist of the tradition. And probably at the end of the day, he thinks intellect precedes will. Whereas the Augustinian tradition, which I think also get you see in Bonaventure and the Franciscan tradition in some ways, the Augustinian tradition is the priority of the affections to the intellect in some way, the priority of the heart, right? Notice that opening of line of the confessions, you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. What's really intriguing in Augustine's story is even when he has solved the intellectual question of who God is and what he needs to believe, he still is not in grace. Right, he still realizes. I okay, I've got all my intellectual problems solved, and I know actually what I believe, but I'm still not in Christ because there has to be a revolution of my will. And um, I don't know. Maybe it's because I'm an existentialist that I that I lean on the Augustinian side. But romantics
0: will lean towards romantic.
3: Absolutely, it's why Charles Taylor does too. I mean, I think you you see. I do think it honors something about the fullness of being human. I do think it gets something. We we are driven much more by our guts than we realize. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. I mean, I think this is what behavioral economics has insight into. And there's a kind of a weird resonance between that Augustinian picture of the human person. But let it let me be the last one to leave here thinking that I'm against Thomas Aquinas. I'm just saying, you know, I'm kind of team that, those are Auggie. the those are the boxes that people yeah, put in. Yeah, yeah. And, so
0: why do so many people, I guess, get this picture of Augustine as a moralist? Because I mean that's sort of the light they shine on Luther, too, is when they they, yeah, they, they, yeah, they show him sure. so obsessed like, with his. Martin he was Luther, like, the he Augustinian. He was
1: sinning as a baby because he was like crying for his mother's milk. <laughs> yes, yes. yes. There, he may have been
3: slightly <laughs> harsh. engaging in revision of his own. Uh, so, I mean, I, I guess without question, Augustine is ruthless in his psychology of our bent. Wills and desires. Do you know what I mean? Like, so I, 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 do think he has a powerful account of the disorder of our loves
1: because he, because he lived
3: them. Because he lived them, right? He's like, this is not scholastic for him. Yeah. This is not academic. <laughs> he, he's, and, and in a way, maybe his biography is what makes him especially attuned to that. I think the moralism piece is just. People have a very selective way of inheriting Augustine, and and um, I think they associate it with a very narrow doctrine of original sin, and uh, um, it's this kind of anthologized Augustine, and they don't appreciate that. Again, I don't think they hear his preaching. It, there's no way that you can hear Augustine's preaching and come away from it thinking that he's this pessimistic moralist. I, I think the base note of Augustine's preaching is hope. And great, well, certainly grace. And um, I I think there's been weird sort of. Puritanical inheritances of Augustine, and, and let's be honest, my Protestant streams are probably partly to blame for this. Uh, I wasn't saying no, no, no. Jane, I, I'll, <laughs> I'll own that. I'll, I'll absolutely <laughs> own that. Um, but I, I, what I hope is people would find in Augustine actually when you really encounter him in the sort of fullness, you find somebody who's really just sort of sympathetic and empathetic, but is therefore honest and is a gift to us in that regard. Yeah.
2: So, Jamie, thank you so much for chatting with us. I, between this conversation with you and reading your book, I can officially say I'm one step closer to being a philosopher now. <laughs> yeah, great. So I real. appreciate that. Great. Um, and we've got one final question for you. If you could canonize anyone, Catholic or not, living or dead, who would it be and why?
3: Wow. What?
0: And you can't a say Augustine. Question. You
3: can't. <laughs> I also
0: love having asking the Protestants this question. Yes. Yeah. Yes.
3: Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, if I could canonize anyone, uh, Kierkegaard. Who is he and why? So, Kierkegaard is, I think, again, it, somebody who I, I imagine in that this kind of stream of somebody who gets how complex our sort of emotional lives are and how that's intertwined with our intellect, intellectual lives. And and um, Kierkegaard is the sort of, uh, one of the great philosophers of that abyss that we have to leap over uh, to find ourselves uh, in grace. And, um... I also love him because he's a great critic of Christendom. In in let me qualify that he he's a, he's a critic of all the ways that Christianity is susceptible to being assimilated to dominant cultural power, just for the sake of shoring up that cultural power. And the way then our our Christianity just becomes this kind of cultural cloak that we wear and I he's he's challenging it's I wouldn't want to live my whole life with Kierkegaard but he's somebody who I think is like therapeutic for somebody who wants to stay in the church
0: all right so Saint Soren Kierkegaard yes exactly (laughs) Jamie the book is on the road with Saint Augustine you can find it wherever books are sold yes where anything else you want to plug
3: I would would love, I I wonder if your uh, listeners too would enjoy. I'm editor in chief of a journal called Image Journal, which is uh, art, faith, and mystery. And uh, it draws deeply on Catholic wells. And uh, I think it's a a space that people would enjoy. Yeah, Image Journal.
0: Definitely check that out. All right, Jamie, thank you so much. This has been great
3: fun. Thanks so much.
1: Support for Jesuitical comes from Emory University's Candler School of Theology, offering a master's degree with a focus on Catholic studies to prepare for lay ministry, nonprofit leadership, or scholarship in Catholic contexts. Details at candler.emory.edu slash Jesuitical. And now we have some housekeeping. What do we have, Olga? Shout out this week to some new patrons, Vivian Cabrera and Benji Lowry.
0: Yeah, they've got last week's newsletter. They're getting this week's newsletter uh t-shirts uh subscription to america if they're giving it a certain level so if you haven't checked out patreon yet it's patreon.com slash america media that's how you can support the show and keep it going lastly uh i just want to put out a call to action so this upcoming issue of america magazine which is a magazine we all edit during our day jobs is a special themed saints issue and we thought what a perfect time to ask people who listen to this podcast a question that we've asked many people before. If you could canonize anyone, living or dead, Catholic or not, fictional or non-fictional, who would it be and why? So, listeners, we want to hear from you. Who Who would you canonize? Who would you Who would you canonize, Ashley? Oh, man. I'm just kidding. You get, that, you get asked <laughs> this at events all the time. But if you want to send this in to us, you can email us uh, at Jesuitical at AmericanMedia.org. Also, we're looking for voice memos, so if you've got Are your... Are you about
1: to give your number on air? No,
0: no, 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 no. <laughs> Basically, what we want is you to pull out your phone, open up the voice memo app, record it, and then send that as an attachment in an email to jesuitical at americamedia.org. Put saint in the subject line so we know to look for it.
1: I'm so excited to see what
0: Yeah, it's going to be say. really fun, I think. Yeah,
1: very good. All right, now it's time for Consolations and Desolations, the part of our show where we talk about where we found God in our lives this week and where it was harder to find God. What do you have, Volca?
2: So I've got a consolation this week. I published uh, my recent piece for America last week, and usually I go through the expected fear of putting anything that I write out there and getting extremely nervous that people are going to read it and send me really awful comments on our website or even on Twitter DMs. You know, you know how horrible it can be for writers out there. Um So I received this email from a reader and I expected the usual kind of negativity. And he was just really gracious and just really grateful for the work that we do on the podcast, for the work that I do as a writer. And the consolation was in just not just getting these words that this guy was like, I enjoy your writing, but also being reminded that the work that we do here is so much more than just how it makes us feel as writers or as podcasters. And it's just about the ministry that we do and the ways that we show people how what faith looks like on a day to day, so it was really consoling to be kind of, sort of humbled through that email, which I really appreciated. So yeah, shout the, out to you.
0: Those are always nice to get instead of the normal "you suck, I hate you" <laughs> messages. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Ashley, what do you got?
1: I have a desolation this week. Um, so I I am moving, <laughs> and in New York, that is not within like,
0: New York. You're, within you're New York,
1: no. I'm staying. I'm staying at America and within Brooklyn. Um, but moving in New York is a uh, really hard um and so i like over the summer just like started feeling kind of restless as <laughs> as
0: augustin jamie say.
1: would say or, <laughs> or augustin um and i was like okay like i'm i'm ready to like live alone like i've had roommates my entire life i just like i want my own space i want a home that i can call my own um and so i just like made the leap to the studio and it's just been like a lot more difficult and complicated than i thought it was going to be um dealing with my former landlords. Um, And so I am now just in this like place of like paralyzing fear and anxiety and uncertainty where I'm like, I'm not sure if I'm going to be paying like two rents for the next (laughs) 11 months. And it's just like, which is unsustainable. Yeah, I I can't, I can't do that. Um, And so it's just like I was having trouble even like talking about what my consolation or desolation was going to be because, like, my entire brain is overcome with this fear. So there's, like, no room for God, no room for, like, creativity or anything else. Just, like, oh, my God, what was I thinking? Like, you brought this upon yourself. There's just, like, a lot of that negativity in my head right now. (laughs) That's hard. Yeah, Yeah, super hard,
0: especially when it's related to your home. Yeah, (laughs) That's a one space that's, like, nice to have. I
1: know, like, I was, like... So, like, this summer, I was so excited to, like, have a place to call my own. And, like, kind of, like, the last thing I want to do is go home to an empty apartment right now. Mm-hmm. And so, so God, if you're listening, <laughs> send a little grace my way. <laughs> a miracle. <laughs> but, yeah, no, I'll be fine. I, I, I'm not worried. <laughs> what do you have, Zach?
0: This week I have a consolation, and it's going to sound like a desolation. Uh, there's a lot going on in my life right now, especially with the wedding. Um, in, in the midst of all of that, I got home from my bachelor party to find that my uh, grandmother's illness, who I mentioned on the last show that I was on, um, had really taken a turn for the worse, and we're not really sure how much time she's got left, basically. Um, which is also why I wasn't on last week's podcast. And that's really tough news. I don't think I've had to like really sit with death a ton in my life uh, firsthand. And so, especially with someone who I'm really close to, has really, really hit me in a devastating way. Yet, in that sort of horrible space, we talk a lot about constellations not just being happy things, right? You can have them while these horrible things are happening to you. And I think this is certainly one of them. But I was able to, like, spend some real quality time with my grandma last week. Um, so, because I wasn't here, I was able to just, like, be present with her and sort of, like, not only like relive the past times that we we had together and like reflect on the grace that was in our relationship there, but like really live it in the present, even in the midst of this suffering and debilitating illness. And so I feel like I have this whole new concept into consolation in this terrible thing that's also happening at the same time as this like life-changing event that I'm going through. And so in this whole mess of emotions that I have right now, I'm still able to see God and there's nothing to call that except consolation and grace. And I'm grateful that it's there. And so that's my consolation this week.
1: You're a really good person. Yeah. Just watching you go through this over the past, I just have to say this because like, even though I had a desolation this week because of what's going on right now, I would have had a consolation if you asked me last week, because while Zach was going through all this, he still somehow pulled off like inviting people to celebrate my birthday and surprise me even though he was doing that so I, was supposed I, to be a, I didn't <laughs> it's fine it wasn't actually a surprise but you tried, I Effort tried. was there <laughs> and I'm just like so grateful for you and um, we I know I speak for all them when we say we're like praying for you and your family um,
0: thank you guys thank you. all right Ashley take us out of here right. oh and I'll see you guys I won't oh, yeah. see <laughs> any of you listeners for <laughs> until I'm a married man Until you. So. I could still. Mr. S- Davis. Yeah, I could still screw it up. Uh, so pray for me in these next 10 days.
1: <laughs> All right. Jesuitical is produced by Eloise Blondio. Our editor is Noah Levinson. Faith formation provided by Father Eric Sundrup. Production help from Tucker Redding and Kevin Jackson. You can follow us on Twitter at Jesuitical Show. You can find us on Facebook at groups slash Jesuitical Show. Please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite podcasts and leave us a review we haven't had any in a while so it'd be good to get a few more and Jesuitical is recorded in the William J. Shirt studio at American Media in New York City for American Media I'm Ashley McKinless with Olga Segura and Zach Davis and two of us will see you next week